HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is being brought to you by Bob's Red Mill, believers in good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. How many recipes could you come up with for bread? If you're Nathan Mirvold, it's 1,500. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 65 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. I'm Jennifer Leizzi, and this is Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network where we talk to influencers and innovators in the food tech space. And today, I'm very happy to be sitting in our shipping container studio, eating pizza with Nathan Mirvold on the occasion of his about-to-be-published collection of books, Modernist Bread, and the debut of Modernist Breadcrumbs, the new collaborative podcast. Nathan, thank you so much for coming. Well, my pleasure. You are in town to premiere, debut your new, I I Hmm. don't want to just call it a book because it's five volumes and 2,500 pages. So do we call it a book or do we call it a... Well, I always call it the bread book. The bread book. Or our bread book or... Modernist Bread is the official title, um, but uh, call it whatever you like. So we have him here to talk about that. And then also a little bit later in the show, we are going to play a preview of the brand new podcast, Modernist Breadcrumbs, which is a collaboration between Modernist Cuisine and Heritage Radio Network. And Heritage Radio Network's very own Michael Harlan Turkel, who you may know from the food scene. So I had a sneak preview and I got to listen to some of the episode and um, actually the entire episode. And one of the things that struck me was, and I'm going to ask you this question, what is your first bread memory? Hmm. That is something that they talked about in the podcast and it's very visceral to many people. Yeah, I don't have a good... A firm memory of the first time I ate bread. I do have a firm memory of the first time that I saw bread baked. Uh, my grandmother made some. And, oh, my God, the smell was awesome. 
And I pretty much feel the same way today when I smell bread baking. Is it Proustian? Do you, is it because you had that wonderful moment with your grandmother, or do you think you would have that feeling without the grandmother? Just about every... Well, I don't want to slight my grandmother and all she did for me, but I think pretty much everybody is just taken by the smell of hot bread. Is that part of what your inspiration was to tackle the bread book? Well, sure. Bread is a food that many of us love, um, but we have an even deeper relationship with it than that. You know, it used to be the staff of life, the thing that was the primary source of calories for most people. Would you, you know, would you say that covering it, it, this is much, much more than just a cookbook because you go back tracking, you know, not just bread from around the world, but also bread throughout time and the history of different types of bread and the grains and the ingredients, um, even mention of, of uncovering fossils and carving bowl, you know, grinding bowls from, I think it was 100,000 years ago. Yes. Is part of the appeal the fact that the study of bread is really the study of, you know, humankind and our culture in many ways? Because it really represents the, the technology of grinding something, of taking the grain, of making the dough, and then cooking over heat, which are three very advanced civilization ideas coming together. Well, and large-scale agriculture. Uh, so it's, it's all those things plus growing all the grain for it. And uh, bread is in many uh, ways the food of civilization. Um, hunter-gatherers, uh, which our distant ancestors were, had to move around. They couldn't build cities. And although their life wasn't all that terrible necessarily, uh, they certainly had a, the... Um, they, they couldn't, like, sit around and be philosophers or artists or other things. They, that was a part-time occupation because everyone's main job was catching dinner. Staying alive. Yeah. Uh, and uh, bread was one of the foods that was ushered in with l- large-scale agriculture uh, that allowed civilization to be sedentary. Um, that's got some consequences all the way to this day. Uh, but... It also allowed the flowering of human intellect and many other things. And bread was there at the start and has been there all along. Did you know that this was the journey that you were going to go on when you decided to talk about bread? Did you have a sense of how far back in time it would be and how much a story about people it would be? Well, I knew that bread was very old. I didn't realize it was as old as it seems that it, it is. Um, I knew that our relationship with bread was very special, um, but I I learned so much more in in the course of doing the book. I mean, for example, uh, throughout history, there have been bread riots. Um, In Egypt last year, there were bread riots. No ice cream riots. (laughs) Okay? Uh, No pizza riots, even though I love pizza and the pizza. it's bread derivative. Yeah, but... Bread is something that was so fundamental to our society that um, that when we didn't get it or its price went up or something else, we would riot. It's interesting to think about bread being a part of human life so many, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago when we hear today people talking about the paleo movement where the idea is to just only eat what early, early humans ate. 
And this is a testament, I think, to saying that they were actually eating bread also, which might be surprising, but turns out science yes. says it's true. Well, the, the, yeah, so a, a Canadian archaeologist found a cave in Mozambique. It had pounding stones in it that still had wild sorghum grains embedded in them, and it dated to 100,000 years ago. Prior to that, people thought the first bread was perhaps 10,000 years old, so it pushed bread That's back a by difference. a factor of 10. And the fundamental point there is, long before you would cultivate a food and grow it domestically, you must have liked it in its wild form, right? right? Otherwise, what's the point? You know, you didn't say, okay, now we're going to grow large amounts of this plant, and then later we'll figure out if we can eat it. No, it's the other way around. Also difficult to do if you're a nomadic people and you're moving around and perhaps not in one place to reap the benefits of a long-term harvest. Right, which is why um, the history of bread also included the history of many developments in agriculture, uh, including irrigation. Uh, if uh, you couldn't just go where the game were, I mean, you could do that if you're migratory, but if you plant your crop, you have to stay and tend the crop. You have to make sure it gets enough water. Uh, it, it starts... Um, it both imposes conditions on your society, but it also enables others. What do you? What was one of the most surprising things that you discovered on the bread journey? Well, uh, we found that kneading, as at least it's conventionally discussed, is kind of a fraud. It doesn't do what people think it does. Hmm. That's kind of a big one. That sounds like a very big deal. Um, we discovered that there's basically no good rye flour in North America. <laughs> um, and the, uh, the way to make wonderful, fluffy, rye, 100% rye breads is well known to bakers in Germany and Austria and never made it here. Now, I just don't understand that because Germany and Austria, you know, we, we buy wonderful cars from Germany. Um, we got Arnold Schwarzenegger from Austria, maybe not quite the same as the cars, but <laughs> these are very advanced nations where you'd think that given the number of Americans that have heritage there and vice versa, uh, how come people didn't realize that the right, we didn't have the right rye flour here, but we don't? There's probably one or two small bakers, maybe even not too far from here in Brooklyn and in some small bakeries who probably know that, but on the larger scale, people don't. And maybe it's because people stop well, baking their own bread at some point. Well, certainly bread is a food that is much more widely eaten than it is made. Mm. Um, right up there with ice cream and pizza. Those are the other <laughs> ones everybody eats, but nobody makes. Um, and partly that's because people are afraid of making bread, I think. It, it seems like it's a very daunting process when, in fact, bread is very forgiving and it's very easy to make. So in the, in the course of making the book, I, I get the sense from reading about it and from talking with you that you had a great deal of enjoyment just studying it and making the recipes and doing you know, the hundreds and hundreds of tests and the photos. What, what do you hope the public will take from it? Do you hope that they're going to have this joyful you know, romp with all these different things of bread? Do you hope to make the paleo movement more gluten-friendly? <laughs> do you hope people will try and bake bread more? Or is it, uh, is it a well, curiosity coffee book, you know, coffee you table know, kind of thing? It's not, it's not for, for me to dictate what people make of, of what we've done. Um, 
you're right. We had tons of fun doing it. Um, you don't spend four years writing a book if you hate the process. Uh, you, you'd write a much shorter book. Um, it, what uh, Our goal is to write something that is for people who are passionate and curious about food. And if you're passionate and curious, I think we've got some awesome things for you, even if you don't bake. Um, if you're a home baker, all the more. And if you're a restaurant chef, or even if you're a professional baker, I bet you'll learn some cool stuff. But the, the, the real issue is this curiosity point. If you want to be told, do this, do this, do this, and then you'll get a result, you, you don't need me. There's lots of recipe books that will say, do this, do this, do this, and they do a fine job. What they don't do is help you understand why you're doing those things. Where, where did it come from? Whose idea was that? Um, and it's those issues of uh, how it works, both from the scientific perspective, how it works from a taste perspective, um, wh what's an alternative way to do it. That's where I think our book comes into its own because we do spend lots of time, energy, and money explaining all that stuff in a way that you just don't find uh, other places. Well, it's definitely extremely comprehensive the way it does go through not just the history, but the history of all the elements required, the history of the equipment to grind the flour, the history of the agriculture to grow the grains, and then the history of the different types of bread from around the world. It's, it's almost, I could almost see it being a curriculum for a history class mm. um, as much as, you know, something for a cooking moment. And very few things encapsulate, I think, all of a, a very comprehensive sort of like 360 view on things. It might give you a little head note in the recipe of <laughs> like, oh, by the way, did you know the Sumerians ate bread? <laughs> well, you know, I think the, the, the story of bread is the story of our largest scale food. It's our, um, in some sense, most commoditized food. Uh, you know, the, the throughout history, we tried to make bread cheap so that people wouldn't starve. And we did. Um, we did maybe a little too much. <laughs> um, it's funny, when you have a single-minded focus on one thing, it's hard to focus on something else also. Yeah. It's almost they made the bread so cheap that it no longer would keep you alive. Well, and it, nor, nor would you want it to. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, the, the irony of bread is that because we focus on everything being so cheap, um, bread today has got almost nothing to do with the farmer. Um, we found this great uh, study by the U.S. Department of Agriculture that apportioned out where the money from a, a loaf of supermarket bread goes, and they figure about five cents goes to the farmer. Hmm. Now, it, of course, you get what you pay for is the trouble, and the farmer has this uh, issue that if they try to make a better one, they won't get paid anymore. In fact, they might not even uh, get paid at all because they say, no, no, we want this commodity product. Now, in everything else in food that we enjoy, uh, people have taken the effort to connect the very best farmers or fishermen or producers with the best people who prepare the food and the consumer. You know, when I was a kid, uh, coffee meant Folgers in a can. That's what mom would buy. Uh, now you get single origin coffees from every imaginable part of Earth. 
Um, and the same thing's true with chocolate. Yes. And it was always true, by the way, with wine. So the great vineyards of France were great vineyards 200, 300, 500 years ago. So in grain, we kind of went absolutely the other way. We went for absolute cheapest. And we now have to sort of crawl back from that. And that is going to require changing attitudes at, at multiple places. Um, to give an example, a lot of people will decry the value of bread at like the supermarket white bread. But if they're at a restaurant, the restaurant charges for bread, they'll get mad. Yes, they will. And so I like to say, well, okay, do you think risotto should be free? <laughs> do you think pasta should be free? And in those cases, people say, well, well, no, that's, you know, the, yeah, I guess the raw ingredient is, is similar, but, but, you know, the chef puts lots of effort. In. Well, exactly. Somebody put a lot of effort into that bread. And if we're not willing to go a little bit further out of our way, to go to the local baker, not to the superstore, if we're not willing to maybe wait online a little bit longer and maybe pay a little bit more and actually seek that out, that, you know, we, the consumers, have to do that. We also need to have the bakers and the millers that make the flour and the farmers all follow suit. But in every other part of food, that's happened, and we have a much better world for it. it you know, you still might eat some Hershey's chocolate, or you might not have chocolate very often, but a world where you can have really great chocolate, I think is a much better, even if it's occasionally, is much better. And the same thing's true with bread. I think, um, I think the, the, the biggest lesson here is that lots of people in the artisanal bread movement have this uh, implicit assumption that the best bread was in the past. And we have to try to reach back. I think the best, best bread in the world in history is being made now. And if we are willing to focus on it and care about it a little bit, even better bread will be made in the future. I think that's exciting. I think that's a very exciting concept, um, especially in food, because we do so much in the classical cuisines feel that the, the glory days were in the past, especially in the European traditions of the Karems and the Escoffiers and all those types of things. But to give people a sense of what you do now could be even better in the future is perhaps a great motivator. I would ask you, you know, listening to you talk about people needing to change their value perceptions about which pieces of the food chain are valuable and what we collectively decide to say is important with our dollars and what we eat. Do you think of yourself as being political or sociopolitical or perhaps part of a movement? Because those things are not political per se, but they are certainly rooted in things that need to change from a societal sense to really become the norm. Well, I think this is an example of politics with a small p. You know, it's very easy to say, oh, it's the U.S. Department of Agriculture, it's the giant farm bill, it's the agro-business giants, it's the enormous milling companies. And all of those things are factors, but it's also up to us. And yeah. if we don't take some responsibility for saying, no, I'm not going to buy the crappy bread, I'm going to buy the much better bread. And, uh, you know, it used to be that an artisan baker is the only place you could get artisan-style breads. 
Now, if you go to the supermarket, there's a whole aisle full of breads, all that say artisans somewhere on them. Even in the freezer section. <laughs> yeah. And sorry, that isn't really the same thing. Now, <clears throat> at the same time, I totally appreciate that uh, you know, my mother was a single mother. Uh, people are very busy. They work super hard. They have families to raise. So there's a reason why we have these easier, more convenient things. You know, I think it would be really crazy and arrogant for me to say, oh, yes, everyone should make their own bread. Because most people don't have the time um, or the energy or the inclination. But I do think that we can be a little revolutionary here. And, you know, when I ask someone, do they think risotto ought to be free? Um, they probably look at you like you're crazy. Yes, but, but sometimes like a light goes off and say, oh, okay, I kind of see what you mean. I mean, the, more generally, you know, when I was a kid, Italian restaurants were decorated, usually, in this incredibly cheesy style. It was an ethnic food. Yes, with the Chianti bottles. The Chianti the bottles with straw and the... Red and the, white checkered tablecloth. The whole deal. And it was like a thing. And A side of spaghetti with everything. I was in a Mexican restaurant uh, in Washington State, which has all of its stereotypical silly things, you know, the travel posters of Mexico and macaw parrots and, um, you know, tequila things up and it, it and Mexican flags. It was just as tacky. As, but that wasn't uh, because, oh, it's those people don't respect their own culture. It was, that was the role that it happens to be trapped in now. You, you know, in, in New York City, you can go to some very elegant Chinese restaurants. Absolutely. But in most cities in the United States... Michelin-starred Chinese restaurants. In most little towns in the U.S. First of all, in every town in the U.S., there's some kind of Chinese restaurant. Absolutely. And many of them are still stuck in the, oh, the decor has to be red and gold paint <laughs> with lots <laughs> of dragons. Not that that's bad. That is a genuine part of, of Chinese culture, but it's not a required part. So if we can see these other cuisines make this transition, I don't see why bread can't. And I think also, back to the very, very fundamental idea of, even if we don't think about the farmer, even if we don't think about our neighbor, even if we don't think about, you know, the next generation, don't you want to put good things into your body? I mean, well, <laughs> if you had a choice, wouldn't you prefer to eat things that were wholesome and good and raised without chemicals and, you know, handmade? Or do you want to eat chemicals and preservatives and terrible things? Well, you've, I, I was ready to say, of course I do, until you, you tripped over just a couple of things. Of course, uh, a chemist would tell you it's all chemicals. <laughs> oh, okay. That's an interesting point, though. As to, you know, those chemicals That's are very... chock full of elements. <laughs> so we would need to make a distinction between good chemicals and bad chemicals, maybe. Well, and look, the, that distinction is out there. There's some things that we desperately need or we get sick. You know, you need to have iron. <laughs> iron is a chemical. It's a way to make shipping containers like we're yes. in right now. But iron is also really necessary in your body. Uh, so is calcium. So are a whole bunch of other mm -hmm. elements. Uh, but uh, look the great thing is that food that tastes great, uh, I think almost always is the best for you. 
And in this book, we had to address the issues of bread and health because, of course, lots of people are concerned about gluten. They're concerned about carbs and the paleo diet, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And those are they're, they're valid concerns. Uh, but it's uh, it, there's a, a thing where I, I don't believe I should tell anyone how they should eat. I, I certainly don't want to tell a uh, poor working mother who only can afford the supermarket white bread that she shouldn't eat it. Okay, if that's what she needs to make the peanut butter sam sandwiches for her kids, I, I totally get it. And as much as I love to put wonderful things, in my, wonderful tasting things in my mouth, which are also generally best for me, I understand convenience too. And you know, if you're on a road trip and you pull into a a mini mart at a gas station in the middle of the night and there's nothing else, you know, you slim jims might get eaten. Yeah. Um, now, would I want to live that way all the time? No. And I think that's what a lot of the uh, issues around food and health come from. Uh, a focus on something to the exclusion of all else, like, oh, gluten is the source of all evil. There's really not much scientific evidence for that. Um, now, would you, should you eat bread all the time as your only source of calorie? I'd say no. Probably not. Um, although, um, one of my favorite sources for uh, original documents in historical research is eBay. Really? So... Uh, there's people who clip old magazine ads um, out of old magazines and sell them on eBay. So, by God, I bought a ad from 1923, Saturday Evening Post, which was the big deal The mag. publication. And <laughs> the title of this ad is, Eat More Bread. <laughs> and it says, Make Bread At Least Half Your Diet. Now, Brought to you by the Bread Council of America. A, a big flour company, actually. But um, it, you can totally see where that came from. But, of course, today you'd never see eat half of your calories in bread. That would be absurd. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I think we're out of time with Nathan. I, I think that we could, you know, given that he has 2,500 pages in the bread book, I think we could at least talk for 2,500 minutes. If you would like to get your own copy of Modernist Bread, or at least learn more about it and learn more about Nathan Mirvold and his cooking lab and Modernist Cuisine, go online and visit ModernistCuisine.com, or you can follow them on Instagram at ModCuisine. We're going to play for you, coming up next, a clip of the first episode of Modernist Breadcrumbs, which is a collaborative podcast between Heritage Radio Network and Modernist Cuisine. I've listened to it. It's really good. And if you are interested in the history of the world, baking, the Industrial Revolution, childhood bread memories, funny kitchen stories, um, and some pretty interesting uh, wedding vows that involve bread, this is the podcast for you. <laughs> Before you go, though, Nathan, I do want to ask you, you just spent four years dedicated to modernist bread. It sounds like you had a wonderful time. Um, is it too soon to ask if you've already started to germinate your next project? So to speak, germinate. Um, well, uh, we're, we're still casting around to, to think about it, but at some point we have to tackle uh, pastry, baking, dessert. Sweets. Yeah. Yeah, now here's so you're finally going to take care of ice cream. <laughs> well, 
Well, here's the problem. I gained like 15 pounds on the bread book, so I, I got to lose a little before I tackle dessert. Maybe go on the paleo diet. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nathan, I want to thank you for coming out to Heritage and eating pizza with us. And so everyone stay tuned. We're going to play a quick message from our sponsors. Heritage Radio Network is entirely supported by members like yourself and by our sponsors. They support us to help make more radio. Stay with us. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, host of The Food Scene and Modernist Breadcrumbs on Heritage Radio Network. I'm here at Bob's Red Mill to find out from Bob himself why his products taste so good. So what's the secret, Bob? To make the best whole grain flour, we look back in time. No modern technology can match the old world engineering of a stone mill. Wow. Bob's Red Mill is using stone mills? How old are we talking here? Well, the stone mills are practically as old as mankind, and no matter what civilization they uncover, they find two stones that people were rubbing together to make uh, something they could eat, whole wheat flour. But the stones that we use are quarried near Paris, France, in La Ferte, and it's the same stone material from the same quarry that the uh, Romans used to make stone mills all over the Roman Empire, of which you can testify by looking at at uh, Pompeii. It's a quartz material. It has a uniqueness about it. It's very hard. It has a certain porosity, and they put the stones together in a unit of 20 pieces and band it so that they use only the best and, and sharpest parts. It's an ingenious thing, but very old. I mean, thousands of years old. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. Those sound like some really special stones. How do they work? Stones turning either the top or the bottom stone, turning at 100 to 125 revolutions per minute, produce a lovely three, four, up to 500 pounds, depends on the, how, how soft the grain is. The bottom stone is the bedstone, and it's also called the nether stone in the Bible. But it also now turns for some configurations. Would you say that using stone mills lead to healthier grains? I know they do. I can watch it. I showed you. You know it as well as I do. Uh, The grain goes in the top, goes through the stones, and it comes out. We don't lose anything, and we don't add anything. Thanks for sharing the story of how Bob's Red Mill is using ancient technology to keep their products on the cutting edge. Michael, we think that we can make a difference by sticking by the traditional way of stone milling whole grain, and that's what we're doing. You can learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast.
There's no smell in the world of food equal to the perfume of baking bread, and few greater pleasures in eating than sitting down with a slice of freshly baked bread, good butter, and a cup of tea or coffee. The first time you make a recipe may not measure up to your expectations. Moreover, once you have made a particular loaf successfully, there's no guarantee that it will work automatically thereafter. Many factors determine the quality of a loaf of bread. The weather, the humidity, the temperature, the flour, the yeast, the balance of liquid to dry ingredients, maybe even the temperament or chemistry of the person making it. Therefore, bread making is something of a gamble. But it is interesting to see a loaf come out slightly different each time, although it is basically the same bread. Despite the uncertainty of the results, you can do practically anything with dough if you know what you're doing, and get a good loaf. For example, you can put dough in the refrigerator in the middle of a rising to slow the process, or you can speed up the second rising by placing the pan over a kettle of boiling, steaming water. I know one person who likes to let the bread overbake in order to get a thick, crunchy crust. Many people like to let the dough overrise so that it's full of big holes and is chewy and crusty. You can throw a recipe together, or you can be meticulous, and chances are, both approaches are likely to produce a good bread. It is a mysterious business, this making of bread, and once you're hooked by the miracle of yeast, you'll be a bread maker for life. What you just heard was a reading that I had during my wedding, right before the vows, an excerpt from James Beard on bread, and... I think it explains not just a recipe for bread, but a recipe for life. I'm Michael Harlan Turkel, and this is Modernist Breadcrumbs. Modernist Cuisine is an interdisciplinary team in Bellevue, Washington, founded and led by Nathan Mervold. The group includes scientists, research and development chefs, and a full editorial department, all dedicated to advancing the state of culinary art through the creative application of scientific knowledge and experimental techniques. The state-of-the-art research kitchen and laboratory is the backbone of modernist cuisine, stocked with a centrifuge, rotary evaporator, freeze dryer, pizza oven, laser cutter, autoclave, and even a soft-serve machine. The lab is a culinary wonderland. Their team of research and development chefs work alongside chemists, physicists, and machinists in the pursuit of new cooking innovations. They've written and produced books like Modernist Cuisine, The Art and Science of Cooking, Modernist Cuisine at Home, and The Photography of Modernist Cuisine, and most currently, Modernist Bread, multi-volume book. The Cooking Lab, Modernist Cuisine's in-house publishing division, publishes all of Modernist Cuisine's printed books. In addition to publishing, the team also provides consulting, R&D, and invention services to food companies and culinary equipment makers, large and small. On December 10th, 2013, episode 170 of The Food Scene, I had Nathan Mervold on. We wanted to show people a vision of food they had not seen before. Nathan, he's always been ambitious, cooking his family a full Thanksgiving meal at age nine. He graduated high school at 14, had two master's degrees and a PhD in theoretical and mathematical physics at 23 from Princeton, and did postdoctoral cosmology work at the University of Cambridge with Stephen Hawking for more than a brief history of time. But there was something about cooking that stuck with him. 
Even through his years at Microsoft as chief technology officer, he asked Bill Gates for a leave of absence to attend cooking school in France, but first had to stage at a restaurant one day a week for two years to get in. So he did that, and he kept cooking. And he kept questioning why we cook the way we do. The cooking lab was then founded, a place where he could experiment with new techniques, equipment, and ideas. And there he wrote a book called Modernist Cuisine, that five-volume, 2,000-plus page, 40-pound tome. But all of this knowledge just piqued more interest and made Nathan ask, why not? That's where we are today. Of all that we understand in the ever-expanding universe, we are still a society of convention when it comes to food. Nathan thinks there's much more to explore. I think Nathan Mervold's one of the, well, he's, he's definitely one of the very coolest people I've ever had occasion to um, meet. By the way, this is Cynthia Nims, a food writer who has been a longtime collaborator with the Modernist Cuisine team. I love being around smart people who doesn't. I mean, I think it's fun to be around um, folks whose intelligence just makes you want to learn more and soak up more knowledge. And he's clearly had a longtime passion for food himself. Obviously had another job. He had some other, you know, his work life was not necessarily um, directed towards food, but it was such a huge passion for him that he wanted to go to La Varenne Cooking School where I had been a student. Um, and he wanted to participate in a program that was geared towards professional chefs. It was, so it was expecting a higher level of um, expertise and experience coming in. And when Ann Willen got this application from this fellow in you know, the Seattle area who had no kitchen background but wanted to go to the professional program, she was like, uh, Cynthia, you live near this guy. Can you go meet with him and like, suss out his interest in why he wants to do this? And you know, do you, you know, help me understand if he really would fit into a professional program. So I went to his office and I met with him and we just chatted about food and, you know, I didn't, at the time, I didn't, I mean, I knew him from, I knew him from um, just maybe the news now and again, but I didn't know much about um, his background and love of food. So that was very, very interesting. And I'm like, and he'll be fine. He'll be good. (laughs) Ever since, Nathan has been seeking explanations in the food world. Modernist cuisine uh, was written because... I wanted to really explore and understand the science-inspired techniques of a generation of chefs that had been working in pushing the boundaries of cuisine forward. So people like Ferran Adria uh, or Heston Blumenthal, uh, people who'd been inspired by the books of Harold McGee, which said, hey, science really has something to this, or the books of Hervé Tisse, um, a French uh, Uh, writer on the topic. And so there was arguably a modernist movement. Um, It wasn't called that, but there was a set of of this. And modernist cuisine was about initially we thought, well, let's just document what these guys do and explain it. Now, along the way, we wound up discovering lots of new things, but, but fundamentally there was a movement and we were joining that movement and uh, effectively writing the book about the movement. Not so with bread. In fact, just exactly the opposite. This is a special collaborative podcast series that takes a fresh look at one of the oldest staples of the human diet, bread. Although it may seem simple, bread is much more complex than you think. From the microbes that power fermentation to the economics of growing grain, there's a story behind every loaf. 
Each episode will reveal those stories and more, beginning with Brad's surprising and often complicated past from the perspective of people who are passionate about bread and shaping its future. Two of these voices come from the Modernist Bread co-authors Nathan Mirvold and head chef Francisco Magoya, who you'll meet shortly. They will share insights from this massive, five-volume, 2,642-page book, the culmination of over four years of nonstop research, photography, experiments, writing, and baking. They're joined by top bakers and bread experts from around the world, many of which we interviewed here at Heritage Radio Network. Whether you love making bread or simply eating it, this show is sure to feed your curiosity and hunger for a truly great loaf. <laughs> the first thing I had to do was make sure he didn't throw my pre-ferments away. Remember my buckets? He used to make fun of me, all my buckets, all over the walk-in. And that was Christina peterson Magoya, a bread baker in her own right, who met her husband Francisco when she was working at Bouchon Bakery in Napa, California, Thomas Keller's much-lauded bakery. Francisco came there as their pastry chef. A lot of the loaves that we did went towards that experimentation and to determining, you know, what direction we were going. And they weren't always absolute, um, but for the most part, we were able to get some really great answers. Francisco is now head chef of Modernist Cuisine and co-author of Modernist Bread. He started cooking in his hometown of Mexico City, where he was surrounded by the cultures of his parents, Italian-American and Spanish. He went to art school, planning to study painting, drawing and sculpture, but ended up working in a hotel restaurant at age 16. He quickly realized that the kitchen was where he belonged. To talk more about numbers, we did 1,500 experiments. 1,500 experiments. That's, in the context of three years working on a project, 1,500 experiments, that's 500 experiments a year. If you have 365 days, and you know, we're not working every day of the week. So a lot of these experiments were overlapping. A lot of these experiments were happening simultaneously. So the idea was, I have, uh, well, we used to have four uh, R&D chefs. Now we have uh, three. But everybody had their set of experiments that they were working on in coordination with our food scientists. So there was often times where we were probably having 10 experiments happening at the same time. Um, so that we could get to all of these things. And, you know, some were duds, but that's, that just happens. You know, if you have 10 duds, you probably have one awesome result. And it's worth it. I mean, I think it's worth it from that regard. And that's you, but you learn from those duds as well. So what we try to do in the book is two things. One is to try to communicate, well, here is what we think, and generally by extension most folks think, done would be for this particular loaf. And we'd like to tell you enough that you could replicate that at home, even if you've never tasted that particular bread and you don't really know what it's supposed to be like. We'd like to give you as much information as possible so you could learn it. And that's important to us because uh, a lot of cookbooks say, do this, do this, do this. And if you follow those things exactly, you'll, you'll get something for sure. But life is difficult. Uh, things vary. Uh, you often don't know uh, where you went wrong. And you know, it's sort of like the difference between telling you exactly uh, a set of complicated road directions versus saying, oh, and if you see this sign, you've gone too far. Well, that's really useful because otherwise you might keep driving a really long way in the wrong direction. 
We're broadcasting from Heritage Radio Network Studio, housing two stevedore shipping containers behind Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. HRN is a nonprofit, member-supported, food-focused radio station with a mission to create a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious world. You can listen to any of our 35-plus weekly shows live at heritageradionetwork.org or our podcasts on demand. I couldn't do this all alone. I'm luckily here, joined by two of my modernist breadcrumb team members and Heritage Radio Network staffers. Hi, I'm Connor O'Donovan. Hi, I'm Jordan Warner. Let's talk about your bread memories and, you know, your, your first taste of a freshly baked loaf. Do, do you remember those days? I don't remember the taste, but I remember the smell. In my parents' house, it was a big, um, like, lofted cathedral ceiling, and we had one of those... 1990s bread machines that we actually called R2-D2 because it looked (laughs) more like the Star Wars character than something that would make bread. And it would make these weirdly shaped like square loaves that seemed like they were taller than any other loaf of bread I'd ever seen. And I just remember the smell that that machine would kind of fill up the whole house. And I don't remember what the bread tasted like from that, but thinking that all bread came out of an R2-D2 was... Kind of my earliest memory <laughs> about bread. Now, now, Connor, do you remember that same? Did they have those in Ireland or? Uh, no, not that I remember. Uh, we bought most of our bread. We had a lot of sliced pan, which is uh, quite heavily processed. So maybe it was made by a robot. But, uh, <laughs> it wasn't in our own home. You know, it's funny that we mentioned scents because that, that is your first relationship to a freshly baked loaf. Mm. That aroma wafting through the air and... You know, it's so yeasty. It's so wanted. And it's from that Maillard effect, you know, starches turning into sugars and turning into something that you want to eat, that you salivate for. Mm. Um, Did you eat bread more as a perfunctory thing, you know, sustenance rather than pleasure? Uh, Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Occasionally, I don't actually remember this myself, but as a two or three year old, you know, I'd be reluctant to go to sleep. So uh, my mother would use uh, bread as a kind of pacifying uh, device. Um, so then, you know, she and my dad would go back to bed, uh, hoping to get some sleep, but then obviously I'd start chewing with my mouth open and that would, uh, <laughs> yeah, keep everyone up. So that was, uh, one of the earliest memories. For me, I don't remember kind of eating the bread itself, but tied to that same memory of the bread machine was sticking my hand in the bowl and eating the dough. And I was always the kid that would eat the brownie batter so much that there wasn't enough to fill the pan. And I think I did the same thing with the bread dough that we were making. And I kind of liked it more before it was cooked than afterwards. (laughs) But but have either of you baked bread? I have unsuccessfully many times. There was when I was in college, I lived in Burlington, Vermont, and went to a lot of dinner parties. And one day I decided that I was going to make a loaf of no-need bread for a dinner party because the idea of no-need sounded easy and fun and impressive. And so I got everything I needed. It was like an hour before I was supposed to be at the dinner party, and I hadn't read all the way through the recipe yet, so I didn't realize that the reason it's no-need is that it needs to sit for 18 hours before you can bake it. (laughs) I showed up empty-handed. Oh, no. (laughs) I guess the closest I got to baking bread uh, would be an oven baguette. Uh, so as a teenager, I used to sail a lot. So you wouldn't have a lot of time to, you know, prepare meals. Uh, so I'd go back to the, you know, dressing room, get my oven baguette sandwich, 
And uh, unfortunately, you know, through process of, I guess, maybe uh, aging or just, you know, uh, bad uh, conditions, basically the bread, the ham and the cheese would all be basically the same color <laughs> when I came to eat it. So not the most appetizing. The many shades of bread. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So we're going to have eight episodes. The first one, all about history, pre-ferment. Episode two is all about grains and flours, the great civilizations of grain. Episode three, yeast, leavening, fermentation, on the rise. Episode four, history part two, pre-industrialization, milling about. Episode five, politics, against the grain. Episode six, shapes and scoring, balls and sticks. Episode 7, Baking, Thermal Mass. Episode 8, Bread Box. And in those episodes, we're going to hear from grain growers, flour millers, bakers, scientists, writers, and historians like Chad Robertson, Apollonia Poilan, Jim Leahy, Peter Reinhardt, Glenn Roberts, Eric Kaiser, Ken Forkish, Stephen Jones, Maria Speck, and many more. Now that we've taken care of introductions, we're ready to sift through the world of bread. And just like with any loaf, we need to start at the beginning. Well, I hope you enjoyed that preview of Modernist Breadcrumbs, a collaborative podcast between Heritage Radio Network and Modernist Cuisine. Look for it at heritageradionetwork.org and make sure and come back and see us every Thursday at 11 a.m. for Tech Bites. Tech Bytes is produced and hosted by me, Jennifer Leutzi. It is engineered by David Tatashore. Thanks to Uptown Nico, the DJ who created our theme song, Nomad a CPU track, and all of our wonderful sponsors who help us keep the lights on. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.